0: Please turn with me to Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Philippians 4, 8 through
1: 9. Finally, brethren,
0: whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute,
1: if there is any excellence and if anything worth of praise, dwell on these things
0: the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Grace to you and peace, faith family. We are now coming to the end of this series on... Um, written in this letter by the book of uh, by Paul to the church at Philippi, and last week, if you remember, if you were here with me, I stated that Paul, in chapter four, began a list. It was a list of imperatives. Uh, you, when you go back to chapter four, verse one, you can begin to see this, especially if you begin to look at the way in which he talks. But it begins this long list of imperatives or commands that in light of the eschatological hope or the end-time hope that Paul instructs the Philippians and us on how we are to press toward the prize, to live as citizens of heaven, as ambassadors, if you will, here where we currently are. And now what we are going to do is we will now move to a passage uh, that if taken out of the context of Paul's writings, which I have seen, books have been written on it, actually, that taking out of the context of Paul's writings, we may be tempted to make it some sort of list that is uh, void of any Christian value. I mean, the list itself is, the one, is one that, by God's common grace, each of us would be wise to adhere to. Each of us would be wise uh, to strive for. But, yet, ladies and gentlemen, it is here that we are reminded that we, as believers are called to do these things because we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, with the full understanding and the full reality that it is God who works in us uh, according to both to will and to work uh, for his uh, good pleasure. So we, as believers, can fully and without, without apology accept the challenge of all that Paul has, has said and is about to say For we know that we are called to work out what God himself is working in, and those who are redeemed by his grace, and we are to live by that faith. I'm going to say this again at the very end, but I think that the confession of faith that we have as Baptists is one that helps us uh, tremendously here. It says this, it says, The ability to do good works does not arise at all from ourselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ to enable us to do good works. We need, in addition to the graces we have already received, an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work us to will and to do His good pleasure. Yet there is no reason for us to grow negligent as if we were not required to perform any duty without a special motion of the Spirit. Instead, we should be diligent to stir up the grace of God that is in us. And I think that is very important for us to understand that the Spirit of God working inside of us is to be that which we are to work out of us. And we're going to come back to that at the very end as a, as a fantastic challenge. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to pick up continuing this string of imperatives and commands as we see Paul call the Philippians and us to live lives of discipline. Specifically, lives of discipline in two main ways. And this is definitely a word we don't like to hear today. Uh, we don't like to talk about discipline. We don't like to talk about being disciplined, and we don't like to talk about people being disciplined to us, but I believe it is here for us nonetheless. So what I want us to do this morning as believers is gather around the table, if you will, gather around God's word, prepare our hearts to hear this word because it is so vitally important as we look at our own personal discipline. Now, as you look at this, as we did last week, you're going to find yourself staring squarely in the mirror. So, I want to encourage you, church, and and, and those of you who are here, that a lot of you may be tempted, as you begin to go through this list, of having uh, almost like you do when you walk, when I used to walk through my grandmother's house and she had pictures of all the kids up and all the family members on a wall. You know, that was. It was the family wall. And what we're tempted to do when you go through this list is kind of walk through that hallway and go, oh yeah, he needs that, oh she needs that, oh she, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And you start looking at all the people who obviously uh, need these instructions. But I just want you to stop uh, by the bathroom real quick before you walk down the hallway and look in the mirror first. And be sure that you're evaluating your heart and yourself in all these. Because I can tell you that your pastor is, uh, is really wrestling with with a lot of them so i come here and we're going to look at this idea of our personal discipline because i realize that the only way i can help others in this area is for me to first uh, first uh, be obedient to it myself and so the first area of discipline and there are only two here and i know there's a long list of things that we have seen and we have read Uh, But there are only two that I really want us to point us to because these two things revolve around the two verbs that are given to us. And the first area of discipline is called, is what I would call you, mental discipline. That's in verse 8. Your mental discipline, the discipline for you to think well. And I want you to notice here, he begins by saying, finally, brethren, in verse 8. I like that. And the reason I like that is because he is ending once again. What I say that? Because I go to chapter 3, verse 1, and notice what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren. Now, as a pastor, I can surely appreciate this, and as a congregation, I think you need to be a little bit more gracious to your pastors. Because when we have multiple conclusions in one sermon, I want you to know it is wholly biblical. And for that, I am grac- I'm grateful to the Apostle Paul. So he does begin by saying, finally, brethren. So he is obviously bringing something to an end. And I believe what he's bringing to an end here is this long list of exhortations that we began with last week, while reminding them once again of their relationship to one another in Christ as a family. But while he does this, he has one last thing to say before he is going to close the letter and before he ends this list of commands and imperatives. So what is it? It is a list of things that we need to dwell on. And the list surrounds the imperative in verse 8. The the verse here, the imperative verse in verse 8, you're going to actually find at the end. Uh, All the the list of things that you have are going to help us understand that that verbal imperative. When he says at the very end of verse 8, dwell on these things. Now, I find that interesting because, remember, he had just got done telling us in verse 6 to be anxious for nothing. To be anxious for nothing, but now the word is to dwell on these things. So instead of dwelling on the things that you don't have control over, instead of dwelling on things that that you can't control and the things that are outside of your purview, namely anxiety, namely is a future that you are unaware of, he is now going to kind of refocus our minds and telling us, okay, since I don't want you to do that, I do want you to do this. Be anxious for nothing, and I want you to dwell. The word dwell here is also translated think, but I want you to know that it means far more than merely contemplation. Some of you may have in your, in your Bible translations think on these things, and I think this is very important for us to understand because it's more than just Con- contemplating these things as though all we're going to do in the morning is sit down in our quiet times and think about these things. Because the word here, as though uh, uh, I don't want us to look at this list and merely philosophize or merely to meditate on them, although, although I don't want us to say that we don't do that. I think we do that. I think we, we help ourselves meditate on these things. We, we also philosophize them in the way in which we look at a, a, a way to to organize our thoughts around these things. But I want you to know that this word here to dwell, it is a dwelling or a thinking that orders. So it's a thinking that gives action. It's a thinking for you reminding yourself that this is a verb. So it is a dwelling that orders like one dwelling on a path to take before you're going to take a road trip. I think that is a great analogy, and the reason I say that is because as you're about to take a road trip, I want you to dwell on these things because in the dwelling is the purpose of the action. I don't want you to dwell on them because you can get familiar with the map, because now you can be very happy with the map, and you can sit back and look at the map, and I'm looking in the face of a bunch of people who are going, what's a map? That just hit me. We don't do this anymore. I'm reminded of the vacation that my family and I just took to Orlando, and then from Orlando, we decided to travel to Atlanta. Our technological advances aided us in unprecedented travel availability. Unprecedented. The days of laying the map out on the hood of the car, and I know some of you don't know what that means, but back in the day, we used to have these things called maps. And they weren't technological maps, they were paper maps. You had to lay that thing out, and you had to trace roads. You had, I know this is going to be unbelievably complex for some of you, but you actually had to know the number and the name of the road at times. I know, I know, stick with me. It was true. It was true. And we would chisel it on a piece of stone, and we would have to use that as some, some direction. The days of laying the old map out on the hood of the car and learning street names and highway numbers are in the past. For now, all we have to merely do is to ask Siri to give us directions to a destination, and off we go. And I do think that our technological advances, by the way, I love the fact that I no longer have to put the map on the hood. I do love it. I do love the fact that I could go to a place in North Carolina and ask Siri siri take me back to this house and she has 40 ways to take me back and she takes me back usually all 40 ways which is which is quite quite humorous but i i do want to provide you a warning because i do think when we ask people today to dwell on something it often amounts to nothing more than a google search and whatever the top five search results come that becomes our limits of thinking Or we go to YouTube and we say, hey, I want you to dwell on these things. And we go to YouTube and we find the top five people. And usually those are people that you agree with. You find the top five people and then that becomes the way in which you think on these things. I want us to be careful. Because obviously I don't think Paul, well, for that matter, I don't think Paul had had maps to put on the hood of the car. I don't think he had Siri. I know he didn't have Siri and I know he didn't have Google. Internet has been invited in, in, in. um, invented in my lifetime so that what is Paul speaking about here is not the case of what we are talking about to dwell ladies and gentlemen is to ponder for the purpose of altering one's course to dwell is for the purpose is to ponder for the purpose of developing one, uh, altering one's course altering one's trajectory altering one's path the question then becomes what are we therefore to dwell on and what paul provides here is a list that one author says quote places them back into their own world unquote and what is rather shocking to me about the list is obviously its simplicity it's a list that any greek or roman or stoic could grasp And I think it's a list that any Greek or Roman or Stoic at that time would think, well, these are good things as well. They would agree on these things. They would look at these things and go, well, of course these are good things. Yet in a context, so it's a list that a a Greek or a Roman or a Stoic could, could grasp and could understand and would agree that these are good things. But it's in a context that no Greek, Roman, or Stoic could ever understand. The reason I say this is because this list is rooted in the peace which God himself provides in Christ. How did I know that? Because in verse 7 he says, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's interesting for us here that James provides us a strikingly similar passage. I want you to turn there, and the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to see that although any Roman, any Greek, any Stoic could look at this and and agree, I want you to see how the Bible begins to to show this to us, and how it is, although it may be similar, it's very different. So turn with me to the book of James, chapter 3, verse 17. James chapter 3, verse 17. And he gives us this idea here, this same list, but listen to the way he describes it. He says, but the wisdom from above dwell on these things, right? I don't think I'm making too far of a point here that to dwell on these things is to bring yourself to wisdom. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, Without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There's that peace element connected to this idea of searching for wisdom in the same way. But notice where Paul says the wisdom ultimately is rooted. I'm sorry, James. James says the wisdom is from where? From above. So going back to Paul here, Paul is telling the Philippians to give their minds to these things. These things that will give them wisdom, wisdom that is ultimately from above. So let's get ready for this list. It is equally devastating and beautiful. It is devastatingly beautiful. I've I've never really thought about putting those two words together in that way, but I think this is very true. It is devastatingly beautiful. It's made up of six adjectives and two nouns. And again, I could honestly, and I almost did this, I almost parse this out into a sermon on each of these, whatever is true. Because you know I can spend a minute on us dwelling on whatever is true, especially in a culture where where truth is such ambiguity. But I'm not going to do that because I, I, like you, would probably like to come to the end of a sermon soon. So, So I want us to look at this. First, I want you to see obviously whatever is true and in a day when truth is relative to taste in other words when a day uh, in our day where we live when truth is more like taste and we don't we don't know the difference between taste and truth and it's all relative based upon you think you can believe what you want to believe and I can believe what I believe and we can all be right we have to understand that truth in the corpus of Pauline thought is much different. And what I mean by Pauline thought is the, the thoughts of Paul. The, 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 the corpus of Paul's thoughts in, in his entire writing, we have to understand what he means by truth because he's the author. And see, for Paul, truth is measured in a different way than our world measures truth. And truth is mitigated in a way that is different than the way in which our, which our world mitigates truth. And the way Paul me, uh, measures truth it is measured by two things. Paul's truth is measured by God, and Paul's truth is measured by the gospel. You see, for Paul, suppression of truth about God is the very mark of idolatry. That's what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about god is evident within them for god made it evident to them you see church for paul truth is not an ambiguous idea out there truth is rooted and measured and 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 mitigated by god himself truth is displayed has been displayed truth is revealed and has been revealed in none other than his son jesus for Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes in the Father except by me. So Paul here is directing them to dwell on whatever is true. And so whatever is true, here it is, whatever is true is that which conforms to God in the gospel. Because if God is truth, then what we would want is we want reality to measure out to whatever conforms to what God is and who he is and the gospel in which he proclaims. That is what truth is. So we would want to to dwell on whatever is true. Which would obviously bring us to a very important point. Do you dwell on the truth? What is truth? There was a man who asked that question once. As he stood before Jesus. But the interesting part about that thing is, do you realize that after Pilate asked Jesus that question, he turned around and never got the answer? You see, ladies and gentlemen, it is so easy to be so close to truth and yet not sit sit around and and actually dwell on these things. If God is truth, if I am am correct, and I happen to believe I am, or I wouldn't be saying these things, but if, if, if God is truth, and that which conforms to God is truth, and the gospel is the revelation of God uh, as a demonstration of truth, then what what must that lead to? You you are smart people. If, If you are not thinking about the things of God and the things of God's word, which is the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, then are you dwelling on whatever is true? And of course... You know, I know that you don't have time, for I have already heard that ad nauseum. I don't have time to dwell on truth. But it is amazing how many of us uh, don't, uh, have plenty of time to dwell on recreation. I would, I, would, I would obviously point our hearts to dwelling on what is, what is true. Secondly, moving quickly through these, Secondly, it's, it's brutal, isn't it? It's brutal. You just sit there and you go, that was devastating and it was beautiful all at the same time. Second, I want you to dwell, Paul says, on whatever is honorable. Whatever is honorable. This is a word that has the sense of those things that are sacred. The sense of those things that are revered. The sense of those things that are noble. The, the things that are worthy of respect. That's, that's an idea there. The th- I want you to dwell on those things that are worthy of respect. I want you to turn with me to a proverb that I think helps us out tremendously here. It's in Proverbs chapter 8. You don't have to turn there necessarily, but if you want to write these, this down. Proverbs chapter 8, and we're going to begin to look at verses eight uh, 4 through 6. The, uh, the writer of Proverbs tells us, and reminding you that the writer of Proverbs is a king writing to his son, primarily, primarily Proverbs, is a king writing to his son. To prepare him to be a king. In other words, it's a man who is ruling to write to his son to teach him how to rule well, which I think is very helpful. Proverbs chapter 8, listen to the word of the Lord as we read verses 8, I'm, I'm sorry, 4 through 6. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence. Oh, fools, understand wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. Here we see these noble things that are connected back to prudence and wisdom. Set your mind on those things that are wise. Set your mind on those things that are prudent. Don't allow yourself to dwell on those things that, are, that will not bring you wisdom and that will not bring you prudence. That is why I think Proverbs is extremely helpful to young men. Because... Proverbs is coming, and he is telling us, "I want you to, uh, oh, naive ones, understand prudence; oh, fools, understand wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things." This idea of listening and and coming to understand noble things. Dwell on these things. Set your mind on these things. So first, we were going to uh, we were going to think uh, dwell on whatever is true. Second, on whatever is honorable. And thirdly, we're going to dwell on whatever is right. Whatever is right. By the way, this idea of right here, this is a moral distinction. That is a moral distinction. And if truth is a, is a, uh, is a par- imperative distinction on who God is, then uh, to think on that which is right, a moral distinction, who is the only perfect moral being that we know? which is God, right? Displayed in who? Jesus. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is what Paul is getting at because, see, for the Pauline corpus, when you go and you read Paul and you begin to see him talk about this idea of right, the moral distinction is always defined by Paul, by God and God alone. The very presupposition... That right is grounded in God, and from that alone we are to dwell. So we are to dwell on God in what He says is right. We are to dwell on God in what He says is wise. We are to dwell on God in what, what He says is, is, is true. We are to dwell on God in whatever He gives us as honorable. And then fourthly, We are to dwell on whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. Now this is interesting because Paul has used this before. In chapter 1, verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17, it says when he talks about... uh, We'll go to verse 15 for context in chapter 1. Some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17. The former... Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from what? Pure motives. Now this is extremely helpful. Because Paul is placing purity as the antithesis of selfishness. So you are to utilize your purity in a way that is looking from a perspective of not being selfish. It is a moral direction, going back to what is right, now that you know what is right, it is a moral direction to live a life of holiness. To dwell on those things that are not tainted by evil, stained by sin, or seeking selfish gain. Now this would go right along the idea of of the Pauline writings that we have just read, that we have been reading, because if you remember, he tells us in his writing That we are to not gain things for ourselves. That we are to to set aside our own things. That we are to not look out for our personal interests. Right? Chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So we are to think on those things that are pure. Fifth. We are to think on those, dwell on those things that are lovely. It's a very unique word here. This word has to do with what people consider to be lovable. What people would consider to have a friendly disposition towards. One translation says, everything that we love. In other words, this idea is to think on that which is lovely. One commentator studied like this. It casts the net broadly so as to include conduct that has little to do with morality but is recognized as admirable by the word at, world at large. Uh, in other words, we would call these in our context contextual manners. There is nothing in the Bible that tells me to hold the door open for women. Nothing. But that is an admirable trait for a man, for a man to be a gentleman, especially in our culture. To, so to hold the door open, that would be a lovely thing. When I was in Uganda, there were certain things that people did. Oh, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Andrew had to come up and, and get one of the men. So I need, I need to inform you of this in case you ever go to Uganda. When men are friends, and I mean friends, um... One of the common things that men do that in order to display your friendship here in the States, it would be we would put our arm around your shoulders. Hey, man, you know, hey, hey, dude, we're walking down the street. Yeah, man, yeah, yeah, oh, joking around. Well, men in Uganda hold hands. The only man, I, and this is honest, the only man whose hands I've ever held on purpose has been my sons. The only man. So when this man comes up behind me and begins to hold my hand, there are things going on in my mind that I'm like, hmm. Andrew comes over to me and he goes, Donnie, I gotta talk to you. Pastor I gotta talk to you. I said, okay. Comes over. I said, uh he says, Men hold hands in Uganda. I said, I am figuring that out. (laughs) He goes, he is actually telling you that he cares for you and that he's your friend. He's actually displaying something that's lovely in our culture. Okay. Okay. So he's holding my hand. I had to, and Andrew told him, uh, uh, by the way, this is one of Andrew's family members, so it's kind of funny. Andrew tells him, they don't hold hands in the states. It's a little bit of a different connotation. And he told him what the connotation was. And he goes, oh. And I said, so here's how we're going to, his name was Bryant. I said, Bryant, this is how we're going to agree to disagree on this. And he said, fine. I said, you can hold my hand. I will not be holding your hand. It shows our culture, and it shows our differences. And we laughed. It was very funny. It was very funny. And he continued to hold my hand. It was really, it was really odd. But I think, I, I think, as I look back at that, I think that's a lovely thing. I think that's a lovely thing for those men, the way in which they, that's lovely. And you've got to understand that that's the word that he's talking, now, do not, let me be clear, I am in Pensacola, Florida, do not come hold my hand, yo, the only man in this place, the only two men in this place that can hold my hand, and I'm telling you this is... Chase, if he wants to come up and hold my hand, he's my son, he can. And Andrew, because I know he's Ugandan. The rest of you, do not come up and hold my hand. You are not going to get a pleasant response. That's not culturally lovely here. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. So I think that that is important. So I want us to think about what he's talking about here. I want you to dwell on those things that are lovely. Those things that are... that are, that. are that you would conduct yourself that doesn't necessarily mean it's moral or amoral but it's recognized as being admirable by all of us I I found this very helpful this could refer to a Beethoven symphony it's not that a Beethoven symphony would be moral or amoral but it's admirable it's like watching a man hit a baseball that is that is lovely and y'all gotta hear me as a sports guy, I know that sounds weird, but that's the idea. In order to hit a round ball coming at you at 100 miles an hour with the guy on the other side trying to not get you to hit that ball with a stick that is also a circle, man, that's for a guy to do that with any sort of excellence, that's what we're talking about. So here's the point. If you were going to be, if you were going to be a musician... Think on those things that are lovely. Think on those things that are admirable. If I were going to play sports, think on those things that are admirable. I want to do what's well. Uh, um, uh, I could also speak about Mother Teresa in Calcutta, taking care of the taking care of the, the 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 hurting and the sick on the streets of India. You understand what I'm saying? That's lovely. That doesn't mean that I have to go and join her necessarily, but that's I can think on those things. I have men on my on my wall in my office, men that I think have. Have done things that are lovely. These are pastors like, like Spurgeon and um, Fuller and uh, William Carey. And I, I have men that are like um, missionaries like you know, David Livingston and George Mueller. And I look at those men and I go, man, they did, they did things that were just lovely. So I, I want you to I want you to look at that. Uh, with Mother Teresa, by the way, it was not only admirable, but it was also moral. But I hope you're getting it. The symphony the symphony is lovely and enjoyable. Mother Teresa is admirable and moral. That's what he's getting. Dwell on those things that are lovable. Sixth, I'll get off of that. Sixth, whatever is of good repute. Whatever is of good repute. And this is much like the idea of loving. It's a word that describes what we consider virtuous. Not because it's moral necess- necessarily, but because it is well spoken of by others generally. It's this idea that we are to think on these things. So church, just pause with me real quick before I go into the next thing. How are you doing so far? How's the mirror looking? Where do you spend most of your time thinking? What are you dwelling on for the purpose of directing your life? What are you laying your map out in? When you lay the map out of your life, are you dwelling on these things? Or are you dwelling on your on your incapacities, on your on your faults, on your failures? What do you dwell on? What is going to direct your life? What are you, what are you going to be, uh, in order to not be anxious for, in order to be anxious for nothing, but to live in prayer and the peace of God to surpass all our understanding? I want you to know to dwell on these things is a metric of that. How are you doing so far, church? And then, and what almost to me, as I was reading this, comes as an interruption. To me, I was reading and I was like, well, these things don't fit. Paul says, if there is any excellence and in anything worthy of praise. So it's almost like he's going, whatever, 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 whatever. Sounds like, sounds like my kids sometimes. <laughs> and then he says, if there is anything, any excellence and if anything worthy of praise. It's almost like he interrupts his whatever statements in order to say something very, very important. It's as though Paul is looking at this list, and he's saying to us, listen, this list isn't exhaustive, so if there's anything that is excellent. In other words, he's saying this is not only the list, because you know what we like to do, especially for those of you who are more... List-oriented, let me just say it like that before I give some psychological name that may, you may walk out of here and go, yeah, that's me, I'm OCD. For those of you who are more list-oriented, this list is not exhaustive. Okay? And that's what he's saying here. It's as though he's looking at this, and by the way, this word for excellent is a word meaning morally excellent. It's Paul rarely used it. But Peter used it twice. And I want to show you where he uses it so that we can get our minds around this idea of excellence. And I think that that's... uh, I often challenge our our instrumentalists. I challenge our our pastors. I I know I'm this guy. I know this. Uh, Some of you have worked with me in other industries and other locations. This is a word that I am very particular of. It's the word of excellence. Because you've actually heard me say this in here. And this is a Bible verse that I often... I often challenge myself with. If excellence is an option, why choose anything different? If excellence is an option, why do we choose anything different? Why do we allow ourselves to, uh, to just fall to that which is okay or good and not strive for that which is excellent? Not look and dwell on those things that are excellent. So let me get to this because I do want you to see this. Peter will use this. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You're going to see him use this word, excellent, once again. And, and it's, it's helping us see what we're talking about when he says, dwell on, if there's anything excellent, dwell on that thing. All right? Verse 9, he says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession here it is a new identity so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him same word who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light what are the excellencies of him that's the moral excellence of God because we have been made a new people so that we can now proclaim the moral excellence of God. Let me, let me give you another one. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. There's two here in this passage. Uh, in, this, uh, in this chapter. From, from, from Peter. And he says, I'm going to begin in verse 2 for context. Because it's a sentence. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus, Christ, Jesus our Lord. Seeing... That his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Did you see that? He called us out of his own glory and excellence. The excellence of Jesus. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Now here's where it gets interesting. I'm going to read verse 4 just so I don't break it up, okay? And he says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lusts. Verse 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. There it is. Did you see it? There's the word. Here, Peter is similar to what Paul is saying, and he says, All diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. Now what Peter says after this list is instructive for us. Watch what he says in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, watch, remember what Paul said, dwell on these things. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turning to Paul, I think this is very important for us to think about those things that are excellent. So think whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and lastly, if he says if anything worthy of praise, anything in your life that would be worthy of God's praise, dwell on those things. anyone in here wrecked yet anyone in here looking at your past week going I am just wrecked I am devastated right now I I know I know that I'm not my my normal rhythm is not to dwell on especially that worthy of praise God am I dwelling on those things that are worthy of praise or am I always the one who he warned about who would always what grumble And complain. Let me remind you, do all things without grumbling and complaining so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, a brother approach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I can tell you this, church. I'm pointing fingers and I don't. I can tell you this from my perspective. If we could just hunker down a little bit on Philippians chapter 4, we would be a much different type of people. Do you hear me? Amen. I hear me. Am I the only brother that is devastated by a life lived that doesn't dwell on these things? You know what's funny? Here's where it gets funny. Even in my admonishment of you and my own confession, I am finding my own duplicity. Because I'm not even dwelling on them now. I'm dwelling on my lack of them. (laughs) So I, I just ruined it. Dwell on these things. Try it. Try it. Try it. Try maybe the next time you get together in missional community. Or maybe even a DNA. Maybe you take one of your DNAs and you say, Hey, we're not going to do the card this time in our DNA. We're just going to take Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 and we're going to dwell on these things. Watch how difficult it is. Watch how, people will, watch how hard it is for your missional community. Watch how, how hard it is for people to sit at their dinner table and just dwell on these things. Because we like to dwell on the negative. We like to dwell on the things we can't control. We like to dwell on the things that are not positive, that are not going right, that are not going good. And we struggle as a sinful, broken, fallen people to dwell on these things. Try it. If you have somebody who has practiced that, it's going to la- it might last a good five minutes. And you're going to be sitting there staring at one another, set a timer, and say for the next hour, all we're going to do is praise Jesus. Watch what happens. It turns into a chirping session. I begin to hear the rooster outside of my house more than I hear the praise of God by the lips of my own family. And my family hasn't heard it from their father, so why should I expect it to be anything different? What would it look like if we just woke up every day and just took the last one? Just the last one. Why don't we take the next seven days and just take the last one? If anything worthy of praise, let's dwell on that. Let's dwell on that for the next seven days, church. See how you do. I want you to, every time your mind goes to dwelling on those things that you can't control, I want you to turn your mind to dwelling on those things worthy of praise. Watch what happens. Watch the spiritual fight begin to happen. Watch you wake up in the morning because every morning you wake up, your mind is going to take you into the what? Into the past. Why? Because that's all your mind knows are past events. It's going to bring up something that happened in your past and you've got to dwell on these things. What are you going to dwell on? Anything worthy of praise. What's worthy of praise, Donnie? What do I have to praise? Breath. Life. Love. Love. Uh, 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 electricity water fingers toes a leg a heart a brain books my wife my children and don't I would be cautious don't do children you don't have a group of children Mackenzie, Morgan and Chase I'm going to dwell on those things I'm going to praise God not as my children as a like a group for you don't say the church, although the church is important. But I'm going to start naming names Rick and Pam and Mariah. I'm going to start going through the names. Oh, I'm, I mean, it doesn't take you long before you're sitting there going, Oh, thank you, Jesus. And then your whole perspective of life changes. So, how is your mental discipline? Paul is instructing us to be mentally disciplined. And then he's going to move from mental discipline to practical discipline in verse 9. Dwell was the verb for verse 8, but here, practice these things is the verb in verse 9. Verse 9, it says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. That's your verb. You want to talk about putting flesh on your message, Paul? Paul? Remember, he told us our citizenship is in heaven, chapter 3, verse 20. And Paul instructs them to live out that truth in the world in which they live. In other words, do not abandon this life, but live out your identity in it. To practice is the verb that means to keep putting into practice these things. Paul says, watch the things you have learned and received and heard in me. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. It's a double couplet here. What you have learned and thus received, what you have heard and thus seen. Practice what you preach. Have you have seen me, practice what I preach. Paul is calling these believers to live the life of the gospel, the life of Christ, the life of the cross. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, that Paul would write in this book, to live as Christ and to die is gain. For us to be conformed, for us to be conformed to the life of Christ as displayed by Paul in, all, in light as us, uh, as us awaiting the day in which our bodies will be transformed into the conformity with the body of His glory. Yes? You see, church, Paul's concern is not the content of the gospel. That's already been determined. Here, his concern is the expression of that content. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. And notice how he ends. And the God of peace will be with you. Do you see how now verse 9 connects to verse 7? how verses 8 and 9 all come back to connect to verse 7, because he said, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds. And now he says, And if you do these things, if you practice these things, the peace of God will be with you. The most dangerous thing that we have right now is this moment of hearing and not doing, being hearers of the word and not doers of the word. The practice of the gospel Brings with it the presence of the God of peace. Do you remember where all this started? The list of commands? Remember the two women? Two women who were at odds. And now here he concludes with what will bring the peace of God to them. And as far as I can tell, and as far as I've researched, when Paul refers to the God of peace in the New Testament, He is always doing so in situations where strife is present or strife is very close. Because we have to be reminded that we have the God of peace. The resolution to a community that is experiencing discord is the presence of the Spirit of God who is the God of peace. And in light of all that we're experiencing together in this moment culturally and in community, I can't think of a more relevant passage. In a day when truth, beauty, and goodness are all relative, we find ourselves at times wanting just to reject it all. And Paul here shows us that we are to discriminate in this land of ideas. One commentator would write, quote, "...approach the marketplace, the arts, the media, the university, looking for what is true and uplifting and admirable, but that one do so with a discriminating eye and heart for which the crucified one serves as the template. Indeed, if one does not consider carefully and then discriminate on the basis of the gospel, what is rejected very often are the mere trappings, the more visible expressions of the world." And that's so true. While the anti-gospel, the values of this world, relativism, materialism, hedonism, nationalism, individualism, they're all absorbed into us through the culture. Because it's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. And this text reminds us that the head counts for something after all. But it must be a sanctified head. It must be ready to practice the gospel. It knows through what it has been learned and received. One pastor would write, Now some people would say that to have a Christian mind is to have a mind that is trained only to think about Christian topics so that this mind closes itself off to every other notion that does not fit within the framework of that which would be described as quote-unquote Christian. And as such, individuals would say that this is a Christian mind because you're thinking on Christian things. Now listen to me. While I would say there is a great benefit from thinking expressly and supremely and in some ways in a primary way about these matters, That would not fit the description of what we are calling a Christian mind. Because, see, church, a Christian mind is a mind that has learned to think about everything from a Christian perspective. So when a a Christian thinks about something, it's thinking about it from a Christian perspective. When it thinks about music, all music, it's thinking about it particularly from a Christian perspective. We don't need to be thinking about Christian music, quote-unquote. No more than we think about Christian engineering, or Christian cooking, or Christian cleaning, Christian algebra, Christian medicine, Christian art. We bring our minds to bear on whatever life brings in a way that is considered to be revealed by the truths of God's word. Often, often we profess Christianity, seek to influence others in their view by some blustering attempt at persuasion. Which gives every indication of being actually mindless, mindless. We're strong in emotion. Which is of course not absent. We're strong on feeling, which is of course very relevant, but when we press into being rational in the realm of the mind, we find very little to say, and we're left talking in cliches and bumper sticker theology. One of our elders told me two weeks ago, we were having this conversation and he said, do you want to know one of the most devastating sermon series you've ever preached at Pine Summit? We saw more people leave after this sermon series than all the other sermon series you've ever preached. You know what it was? Bumper, sticker, theology. You want to know why? Because people like their pet beliefs and they don't want to be, they don't want to be set under the word of God. And then when we go out and we're among our friends and our neighbors and our, and our employer, employers and our employees and they're confront, confronted with deep and significant questions about life and we answer them with these cliches and these bumper sticker theology and whatever can fit, for some reason our theolo- we think that our theology has to fit on this right here. If it doesn't fit on this right here, we can't give people an answer. And then when we give them this, what kind of life are you to have? Pure life. We're more like a 30-second commercial than we are gospelly invested Christians. Donnie, my life's falling apart. Well, you need to have the pure life. And then what do your friends look at? They look at you and they're, they're put off. They're not attracted by those that think like that. They're not attracted by the Christian mind. because all our minds have been constrained by four or five proof texts. And you hear people coming all the time in the church, and they're dealing with deep, significant issues. People outside of the church, I know, I deal with them, and they, they come to you, and you go, oh, you just need to let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near." And we're even worse. I'm I'm, I'm quoting from chapter 4, verse 5. We're even worse today. What we do today is we put dot, 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 the Lord is near, dot, dot, dot. Y'all hear me? The Lord is near. Well, yes, the Lord is near. Thank you for letting me know He's present. But what does that have to do with the price of rice in China? What does that mean, the Lord is near? What if I think the Lord is is a man who's... Who's sitting, an old man, you know, he has this gray beard and he's, he's trying his best just to reach out and touch someone. He thinks it's the AT&T God of Michelangelo, you know. God's out there going like this and the man's going like this and they just can't seem to get together after all these years. Can somebody please draw somebody a finger that will touch, something that will touch. No, that's our view of God, or the God of Thor. You know, we have this God who's walking around, and he's the only one that can have the hammer, and he's just waiting to just hammer you, like like it's a like it's a cosmic whack-a-mole God. You know, he's just waiting for you to do bad, where you can just you pop your head up, get down, head up, get down. And you're telling them the Lord is near. Well, heavens, I don't want to. I don't want him to be near. If he's that near and he can't reach me until I reach him, oh my God, what's he going to do? We have have a pathetic view. And I'm trying to get us to see that we have got to change. We We need to dwell on these things. Bring us back to our doctrine. Bring us back to our God. And then with Christian minds, That that is guarded by the by the peace of God, and the the peace of God is will be with you. It's an experiential peace. It's a peace that you have in life. And the reason that is, is because you're dwelling on those things that are him because he is real, because his spirit is here. What a message. Verses 4 through 7, we learned that the answer to anxiety was prayer. And here we're learning that the answer to distortion is discipline mental and practical discipline. I want to go back to what the confession said. Because I think this is so important as we are about to approach the Lord's table. Well, Pastor, I just got to work harder. I just, man got to hunker down and get at it. Pull myself up by my own bootstraps, which makes no sense. Have any of y'all went home and tried that yet? Go home and try it. I want you to put some boots on, grab the bootstraps, and try to pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. But how many, people, how many people in this room have told people, you just, need to go, you just need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? And I was the teenager that was looking at you going, what the heck does that mean? Listen to what the confession says. Listen to what men who are much smarter than me have said about this. That the ability to do good works does not arise at all from ourselves but entirely from the spirit of Christ to enable us to do good works we need in addition to the graces we have already received an actual influence of the same holy spirit to work us in us to will and to do his good pleasure yet this in no reason for us to grow negligent as if we are not required to perform any duty without a special motion of the spirit Instead, we should be diligent to stir up the grace of God that is in us. Instead, we ought to be diligent to stir up the grace of God that is in us. And do you know what I discover? So many of us are so busy trying to stir up the grace of God in others that the grace of God has not revealed to them instead of worrying about the grace of God that is in us. I don't know about you, but I find myself devastated. But it's beautiful. Because I also, at that self-same same, self same moment, I find myself unbelievably encouraged. Because I look in the face of a bunch of people and I ask, Would you like for the God of peace to be with you? You know Paul's speaking to believers. For those of you who are unbelievers, you are at war with God. You are not at peace with God. And the reason you're not at peace with God is because you are at war with Him. You are not desiring or you are not saved. You are an unbeliever. You are you have rejected what God has done. So I would call you to salvation. Jesus, the Bible says that He died for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in that, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that the Bible also says that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart He was raised from the dead, you can be saved. The reason that some of you are not at peace with God is because you are not at peace with God. And for some of you, you haven't been involved in church, so not it being me telling you you're not at peace with God is—that's why I love dealing with unbelievers. That's why I love dealing with the world, because when I tell my next door neighbor who I just told this week, brother, the reason you're so—the reason you're having so, so many problems is because you're not at peace with God. He goes, "You darn right, I'm not at peace with God." Well, we got that settled. Do you want to know who some of the hardest people are to understand that? People who have been going to church their whole life who think they're at peace with God and they're not at peace with God who are saying, look, at, look, look Lord, look at what I did for you. Look what I said to you. Yet when that day comes, he's going to look at you and he goes, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. So if you're in here and you're an unbeliever, the reason you don't have peace with God is because you don't know his son who has provided you the peace for him. With Him, excuse me. Now let me speak to my believing brothers and sisters. And by the way, if you're an unbeliever, I would call you to baptism. I would call you to trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. I would call you to follow through in baptism, which is to be dunked beneath the water and to be brought back up to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I think that's a great transition. So if you, are, if you are here and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm calling you to trust in Him as your Lord right where you are right now. Call out to Him. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. May the Spirit of God, may His grace now draw you to salvation. And that is my hope in here. And for those of us who are His children, we're about to come to this supper. We're about to come to this table. We're about to partake. How many of you who claim to be believers... Are not at peace with God. And what we want to do is we want to go to some library out there somewhere to tell us, okay, what's my five steps on being at peace with God? Guys, I don't have, I have the library. I have the library. You want to be at peace with God? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice those things, and I'm going to tell you the God of peace will be with you. Are you ready? Are you ready? Now, now, here's, 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 I can hear it, I can hear it. I can't because I don't hear voices anymore. Um. But I do hear, I I hear the echoes on the halls of people that I have spoken to all the time. Well, Donnie, that's just easy. Well, if it's so easy, why aren't you doing it? Will you please stand to your feet? Let us prepare our hearts now for that which is easy, which we don't do. Because we realize that we can't if it's not by the grace of God, right? So we come to this table, and by the way, if you're an unbeliever here, unbaptized, if you're an unbeliever, we would ask for you not to participate in the Lord's Supper. This is for believers. We would ask for you to participate in baptism. That's what we would ask for you to participate in, to make that positive, to think on whatever is good and pure and lovely. I'm doing that. You see how I'm doing that? We would ask for you to do that. But if you refuse to do that, then we would ask for you not to participate in the Lord's Supper because you've pushed away from the table. The offer is there. We would just ask for you to do that. So those of us who are in the church, who are believers, we come into this moment and we ask for the Word of God to do its work in us. As I think on my own mental discipline, I'm going to pray that God would do His work in my mind. As I think of my own practical discipline, my own work, my own outworking, I'm going to ask God to do His work in me, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. And then when we're done... This is a moment of just reflection so that we don't enter into this table in an unworthy manner. And so that we don't enter into this table thinking that we can do it. We need him, yes? Well, I need him. So as we pause now and reflect on these things, preparing our hearts to participate in the supper, let us bow our heads before him and confess our sins together. Father, I stand here, and oftentimes, God, even in my own life, I, just the idea of thinking on those things that are excellent and dwelling on those things. God, I look back over this week, and I just ask, oftentimes, God, I, I'm the first to find fault. I'm the first to find exceptions. I'm the first to just be so capable of finding mistakes my heart, my mind needs to be disciplined in trying to think on those things that are excellent. So God, would you help me? Would you help us as a community of faith? As I even think about our conversation last Sunday, which was beautiful and good, and that God, as we even begin to look at ways as elders and as a community of faith to move forward, that God, you would help us and you would guide our hearts. That you're that your peace would come upon us, that, God, there would be no discord in a way that would divide us. There would only be unity and peace in which you unite us. So, God, I pray that as we come to this table that we would, that we would truly place at your cross and at your feet, God, our cares and our concerns and those things which brings us, brings us so much anxiety and worry. And that, Father, we would pick up the elements of your body and your blood to remind us of your death, burial, resurrection, and ascension and your soon coming return. And that, God, in these things, we'd be reminded that you have not left us alone, but because of those things, you have drawn us to yourself. So bless us now as we participate. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May we worship him. Amen, church? Amen.
0: And as has been our custom uh, in the last several months, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. Now there's one thing I feel like I need to tell you this morning, that the apostles did not write the Apostles' Creed. That the Apostles' Creed is called that because it was attributed to the apostles' teaching. The creed actually began to, they first believe it began to be used within the Christian worship service along the lines of about 200 to 300 AD. And it was not just simply recited like we do now, but it was part of the baptismal experience of the early church. That in that in order for one, if one professed faith in Christ and said they were going to follow Jesus, the Apostles' Creed was their statement of faith. That as they were being baptized, they would be baptized not once, but really three times, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as you recite the Creed, you see the threefold division of the persons of God. So they would be baptized in the name of the Father, they'd be baptized in the name of the Son again, baptized for a third time in the the name of the Holy Spirit as they recited the creed. So it would have been a beautiful moment that as this person who professed faith in Christ was now baptized and became a part of the church, that they were rejoicing, stating these great truths of the Christian faith. So I invite you this morning in response to what Christ has done for us and in response to the, to the sermon that was preached this morning, that we confess the truth of the ancient church. We're just echoing what really began several centuries ago when the early Christian church would be, the, the people in the church would have confessed. So let's confess the Apostles' Creed this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, from he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints,